Welcome, listeners, to the third season of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and your podcast host. Tune in and join me as I chat with authors writing in cozy and traditional mysteries. You won't find explicit violence, sex, or gore. You will find intricate plots, engaging characters, and brilliant writing. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Sam Bond, author of The Pacini Connection, book one in the Milkwood Murder Mystery series. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Alexia. Thanks for having me on. Uh, The Pacini Connection is the first Milkwood murder mystery featuring Josie Monroe, a musician. Would you please introduce us to Josie and tell us a bit about what she's up to? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Josie is uh, my main protagonist, Josie Monroe. She is a British expat who has been living in Austin, Texas for the last 20 years. And she has been lured home by her very demanding mother, Fanola, to attend her stepsister's stepsister's wedding. And so that's where the, the book opens at this rather bizarre wedding in a castle in Shropshire. And then she escapes down to her childhood village where she grew up with her beloved aunt and um, she gets to the village of Milkwood and all all heck breaks out and um, but she's she's a wonderful character she's she's quite often the straight guy for the other people people um, a lot of my friends have said she's very much like me she um, you know I'm an I'm a British expat also living in Austin Texas write what you know right <laughs> and um, I also play the piano and I love classical music like Josie and I'm also terrified of blood and don't eat egg whites so I didn't realize I was writing this almost caricature of myself but apparently I have without meaning to <laughs> all right I've got to ask about the egg whites Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's really funny. So two things. First of all, I obviously was a very, um, as a child, I was very picky about what I ate, but my mother one day made me fluffy meringues and I just loved these fluffy meringues. I must've been like five or under, but it's one of my first memories. And apparently I overdosed on fluffy meringues, not the, you know, not the hard ones, like the really soft ones, which kind of go into peeps. And I, I got sick from eating too many. And after that, I was like, I'm never eating egg white again. And I haven't ever since I was like five, my parents were, you know, when I was little, they'd have to like literally just pull away the white. And I'd be like staring at toast with butter on it going, is that egg white? Now I have got better now as an adult, I do actually eat scrambled eggs, but I don't eat anything with quiche or anything with too much egg white. I don't know. I think now it's just a habit. But um, there was this place down, I'm in Austin, Texas, and there was this place down here called Full English, which unfortunately has closed over lockdown. But they were, as it sounds like, um, an English restaurant. And I went in once for my birthday with my my best friend who shares the same birthday as me. And we went in and she'd never heard me order breakfast before. And she's just looking at me like, 
oh my goodness, what are you doing? I'm like, okay, so if you could just get the egg and then maybe crack it, but like keep the yolk whole and throw away the white and just fry the yolk. And so she's laughing at me. A year later, we return and I'm, and I'm trying to explain the, um, how I want my egg yolks done again. And from the kitchen comes this voice and somebody yells out, it's the egg lady. <laughs> and they remembered from like the year before that how, how strangely I want my ex-husband, bless his heart, when we go, because having breakfast was a very American thing. When I first moved here, I was like, what do you mean you go out to have breakfast on a Sunday morning? And so I would go out like always kind of a little dubious. And then I'd want my eggs and I'd be starving hungry. And my ex-husband always said, you know, if there was roadkill in front of us on the road or the best restaurant, like 50 minutes up the road, you'd say stop for the roadkill because once I got hungry, you know, I think now we have that term hangry, but back then, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here as my glasses are slipping down off my nose. But um, yeah, I was just like, I'm, I'm, I, I just couldn't believe the whole, the whole egg white thing that they, 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 they remembered it and everything. It was, it was really funny. I'll, I'll end that story because it's going on, but it was, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. How, yeah. It's just like, I think you take, you take, you write what you know, don't you? Like, you know, we both write about classical musicians and, and we both obviously must love classical music. So um, that kind of slipped in, but uh, yeah, it's, it's funny how that happened. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I promised, you no know, curveballs, but you just, dropped in egg whites. It's like, I, I can't let that go. I have to oh no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, back, back, to, back to Josie, as you mentioned, um, a wedding brings her from Texas back to England and a side trip brings her to the village of Milkwood. So if you were writing a description for a travel guide, how would you describe the village? Oh, it's one windmill short of like an Anglophile's dream. You know, these Americans who love British villages. It's, it's, it's kind of like, a Surrey version of the Cotswolds. And it's actually based on a real village called Shear, which I've been visiting for gosh, 35 years now and probably longer. You know, you know when you get older and you and you say like some outrageous amount of time and then you re- and you think you're exaggerating and then realize actually you have to add on a couple more years. <laughs> yeah. I'm at that point in my life where I go, oh, it was 20, wait, no, 25. Make that 30 years ago, yeah. So I've been visiting Shear, which is this idyllic village down in um, the Vale of, I'm going to butcher saying this, but like Holmstead, I think it's said, it's it's pronounced. Anyway, it's just a really idyllic part of the world. Um, Northern Surrey is, is almost like a commuter ville into, into central London. It, it abuts London. But as you get further south, you get more into the country. And um, my friend introduced me to this. Actually, Fiona Ward, as she was when I first met her, and Adam Ward, that one of the main characters was named, her last, his last name was named after her. She didn't notice, mind you. Uh, when I asked her if she'd read the book, she's like, oh, I loved it. I said, did you notice the ward? She's like, oh, I didn't. I'm like, great. So glad I named my, one of my main characters after you. But that, I digress. Um, she introduced me to this village and it has an amazing church that has a, a um, an anchoress. Have you ever heard of an anchoress? I have not. Okay. So back in like, you know, 12 something, apparently it was considered a great honor to be walled up 
in the walls of the church where you could only view the altar and the village people in exchange for you praying for them constantly would kind of keep you fed and watered and bring in things and take things out through us like there was a slit to, so you could see the altar and then like a little hole where you could pass things in and out on the outside of the wall and if you go there today you can still see this and I do mention it because I mentioned Shia in in the book. I mentioned that Josie was, um, as a child, was taken there by her by her aunt Rose and had nightmares for years after. And if you go to this church, you can actually see the old-fashioned writing. I think her name was Catherine. I've forgotten her last name, but Catherine of Shia, the anchoress. So she was quite famous, and she actually petitioned to go in. Then several years later, asked to come out, and then went back in again. So I mean, what? What an, I mean, totally different times, obviously, but what an amazing existence, like how strange that is to us to be holed up in a church as not a punishment, but as, as, as a, you know, great joy. So this village has this wonderful little uh, stream, which is actually the Tillingbourne that runs through it. And my mother and my two girls and I have been going there since my children were babies to play poo sticks over the bridge. You know, the A.A. Milne from Winnie the Pooh, the poo sticks. Oh, okay. read those books. Yes, I've, I've read a couple of them. So Poustics is where you find a small stream and a bridge tra traversing it. And you go to the upside of the stream with your stick and you, you reach across over the river and you drop on the count of three, you drop your stick and then you rush to the other side of the bridge to see whose stick comes out first. And that's that's poo sticks. So that actually is going to come out, I think, in book three a little bit. We, we talk about playing poo sticks, but um, that's that's the village of Shear. And so that's what Milkwood is based on. I've changed all the names of everything. So we have the, um, the different names. The, the pub there is the White Horse. And um, uh, here it's got a, a bit of a sillier name. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's very much based on that. And it's quite funny because I, I love books with maps in the front. Have, do you, you know, if I'm on the, on the verge of like, do I buy this book or not? And there's a map, it's like my tipping point. And so I wanted to have a map at the front and I drew this map. And, and then I got my daughter to, to do a better job because she's much better artist than I am. And then when I was literally about to press go and send everything to my formatter, I realized that I'd drawn the map upside down because I'd <gasps> always come into Shia from the north to the south instead of from the south to the north. So if you look at that map, you'll notice that the, uh, the compass is actually upside down. <laughs> Because I was like, my daughter's like, I am not redrawing that map. Because <laughs> in fact, her final version to me, you know, when you keep renaming things as an author, I'm sure you've got your final version of your manuscript. And then you've got your final dot one, final, final version. <laughs> this, this was the same with her map. It was like final, mum's final version, 372. I'm not doing it again, mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of funny and um so yeah so the map is actually upside down yeah but that's <laughs> it sorry Alexia say, has anyone noticed that it's upside down no but I have had a um a, somebody on Amazon um 
uh, contacted me and said, I feel like I really know this village. I, I, I know Godalming and Dorking and um, all these different places around. And it really feels like the village of Shear. And I wrote back and I said, that's because it is. Well done. You've, it actually <laughs> is based on Shear with, with a few additions. I've given it a village green and... Um, uh, and a duck pond. But other than that, it's pretty much the village of Shear. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, now you, you said you made up the name of your, of the pub in the book, but um, pubs do have some very creative names. What are some of the more creative pub names you've come across? Yes, well, I, I did some research when I was, um, as you do, as a writer, doing this and looking up different pubs and everything and, and taking a, a look to see what the most popular pub names were. And I think it was things like the King's Head, the White Heart, um, you know, it's a very kind of traditional. But I think as we have gone into the 21st century, um, these old fashioned pubs have kind of been taken over by bigger breweries or something and they've renamed them. And, you know, there's just some, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but my, my pub is called the Dirty Duck and the Pig and Whistle. And then in book two, you come across the Cat and Jacket. And these are kind of more, more kind of trendy, fun names that the pubs in these days. Um, we have one that we love to go to in Kent called the Toby Jug, which isn't particularly old fashioned, um, new, but it's, Rather, it is. It's not particularly new. It's more of an old fashioned. But I love, I love that, and I love back when I was growing up. A lot of the pubs have shut down in the last like twenty years. I think the smoking ban didn't help. Cheaper liquor, but um, you literally would get directions if you were lost. And this is before you know you had GPS and you've got your map upside down. And you'd stop. And um, I grew up on the North Welsh border and um, very, very rural. I think Shropshire is the most rural county in England. And you'd roll down your window and say, you know, how do I get to this part? And, and they say, oh, wait, so you go up the road and you take a left at the at the dog and jacket and you, you take a right at the Queen's Head. And if you get to the to the pig and trotters you've gone too far you know <laughs> I don't know what accent I was putting on there but um I was kind of like meant to be a rural Shropshire accent and anyone from Shropshire I am listening to this I apologize most profusely <laughs> um but but it was it was very typical to give directions by pubs because there were just so many of them and the town that I grew up in Shrewsbury it's a it's a Tudor town it's almost completely surrounded by England's longest river which is the River Severn um and where it isn't where it doesn't come together there's a red sandstone castle which is quite wonderful and you you can't go 10 paces you were just talking about before we started recording about living in Newport with all the um the the various uh plaques on buildings well I grew up in Shrewsbury and I went back with my children as an adult and I remember turning to my mother and saying all right were these buildings here when I grew up you know <laughs> 1580 or something I, was like, I just don't remember it being this picturesque and there's plaques like saying oh you know rich um, Henry Tudor slept here and Elizabeth I had breakfast here and all these kind of things so um yeah, I got off topic again. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but yeah, and, it's, and Shrewsbury is known for having, at one point it had 365 pubs. That's what I was getting to. Wow. And I was dating um, a young man in my late teens who was 21 and him and his friends 
made an attempt in one year to get round every single pub in the, that they they made a list and and they every Thursday I think it was they would go out together and try and knock off like three or four pubs on the list and um, so that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's, that's, that's an epic pub crawl. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> only for the young and stupid. I think. <laughs> Uh, now, now you use a, a, a British vernacular in your story. Uh, were you concerned that your American readers might be confused by that? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I was looking at a lot of other books before I published this, and I was trying to see what they had as their front matter. And a lot of books that were set in England had a... Um, a list of words that you might need translated. And I think, I hope at least, that I do a good enough job on maybe 98% of the book that the words are used in a such a way that the, the meaning is obvious. Even if you haven't heard the word pavement, if I say Josie uh, jumped out of Jenny, which is her car, and started walking along the pavement, you'd, you'd understand that that was the sidewalk, right? Right. So I try to use it in a way that it makes it obvious. But saying that, I just, um, my second book, uh, The Unread Prophecy, I just had that back from my editor. And she is an incredibly smart woman. She won Jeopardy twice earlier this year. So that, that when I talk smart, I'm talking like really, really smart. And she had written that she didn't know what a Malin streak was. And that was a word that I grew up just as part of my vernacular is in my lexicon and so I put I'm, I'm quite big on Facebook and so I went onto Facebook and I asked all my friends I'm like who here knows what a Malin streak is and it was pretty much divided the majority of English people knew what it was and the majority of Americans didn't and so I just went back and I clarified and, and for those of you who don't know it's it's a white streak of hair where there's no pigment and it's it I think it's hereditary oh, like a piebald Yes, I think that's what you call it. Or my, as my friend said, a skunk, <laughs> something to do oh, with skunk. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, so classy, Claire, really classy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I've heard several different names for it, but in, in, in Britain, or as far as I know, I've always called it a Malin streak. And I believe it was Catherine Cookson who wrote a series called The Malin, the Malin Streak or something like that. And it was about um, a man back in like the 1890s who, um, had a, a series of illegitimate children. I don't think he was a very nice character and they all had this Malin streak so that you could tell that they were his. I think it was actually made into a TV series or something, but yeah, there is definitely, a, um, you know, when I first moved here, my ex-husband, I would be chatting with friends and I'd be thinking the evening was going swimmingly well. And afterwards he would tell me that every time I left the room, they would go, what did she say? What, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I believe my British accent was probably a little stronger back then, although I, I have been told by most people I, I still do have a British accent. My my mother would always beg to differ. She said I sounded like a damn yank, but I think it was more, you know, my children are American. They 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 were they didn't they weren't born here, but they moved here when they were very young. And so they don't remember anything different. Um, so I think I use a lot of American terminology. Uh, to um, to my children because that's what they're used to. So I think that's what my mother was referring to. But no, I, I decided not to put in a list of, of, of explanations. Um, 
at the front of the Puccini connection. I think I just say, I think my, my readers are smart enough to figure this out. But saying that as a, as a writer, as an author, you never want your reader to be jogged out of the book uh, by something that they don't understand that takes them away from the story. So I don't know if that was a smart idea or not. I think I was just exhausted with all the front and back matter and went, ah, I'm done. I, I, I think at least from the reviews that I've seen, no one had had a problem with it and most of them actually found it charming, so. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, yes. I'm, I'm in the process of writing a magnet piece actually to, to put out there and I thought I might actually write that about the difference between the English and American language and in the, in the point of view of Josie of how it was for her, which of course would be very much how it was for me. I, I remember coming to the States and going to the store and, and I'd come back literally two and a half hours later and my husband would be like, how did it take you so long? I said, and why did you buy all these name, these non name brand items? And I'm like, because I don't know what the name brand is. <laughs> and how many types of milk can one country have? What is 2%? And I was just flabbergasted at the, at the range of products that you had. I still remember being so overwhelmed and so kind of like, you know, you imagine going, I was like, you know, this is a country that speaks English. I should be able to navigate its shores. But apparently back in like 1994, I was just absolutely flummoxed by the, um, the, the selection in your greengrocers. So, so the, there's no 2% milk in England? No, no. I think oh. we skimmed and full and uh, okay what exactly is the difference between one percent and two percent I mean have they done an, an analysis is it really that you know I'm like I yeah and yogurt I was like look at all these yogurts yeah I, I sound like I'm coming from some kind of backward Russian province or something don't I but it was kind of like that because um you know, I won't say it was post-war when I was growing up, but in the 70s, I still remember bread shortages where we used to have to queue for bread in England. And I just don't think, I think it's changed a lot now, but back in the early 90s, we still had not as many options as I think you guys did. Of course, now I'm picturing an American going to England and stopping in a grocery store and trying to find 2% milk and having people <laughs> look at them funny, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even if we have it, we don't call it that. And I found out what we do call it. If I think we just have skimmed milk and whole milk and, and that's it. But yeah, it's funny. I, you know, it, my ex-husband lived in England and I met him there and he remembers he was trying to call directory inquiries. And again, this is back in the early 90s where there was no cell phones. And he remembered, I, he said he read through about the first 15 pages of the yellow pages, trying to figure out what directory inquiries was and, um, you know, 411, 911. And I, I can't, you know, to be honest, I can't remember what it is in England now, but it was none of those. It was something completely different. And then when I moved to the States and I tried to make a long distance phone call from Paybox once. And there is apparently all Americans are known to um, they're born with the knowledge that you have to put one in front of a long distance number, which is mentioned nowhere. Let me tell you, <laughs> nowhere. And I remember leaving this pay box. I was trying to call my husband. We were down there on business and I was like, I was in tears. And I remember this person came up to me and like, can we help? And I'm like, I just can't. I don't know how to call this number. <laughs> how hard can it be? And they're like, oh, you didn't dial the one. I was like, 
well, how do you know? And they're like, we, we just know. We just know. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. I'm sure it wasn't funny then, but I, I admit that's that's hysterically funny now. Yeah, I, yeah, it, it needed some time. A few years had to pass so I could get over that one because I was like, I'm a woman. I've traveled across the globe and I can't make a phone call? I mean, come on. Yeah. Now that, that um, was sort of, uh, I guess, uh, we could cultural differences or misunderstandings of fish out of waters. Sometimes that can be used very effectively in, in a story. But Josie was from England originally and then moved to Texas. So does she feel kind of back at home when she goes to Milkwood or has she been in the U.S. long enough that she still feels a little out of place? Yeah, I, I like I said, Josie is very much based on me. So I kind of give her my thoughts. And I feel after living here 26 years, that I don't, I have the best of both worlds. Worlds. I straddle both divides, you know. Um, I have all the wonderful Americanisms that I've picked up and that I love from being here, which are many. And then I go back and I and I I still have so much of my Englishisms, my Britishisms that that I love. But on the flip side of that, I don't really fit in either way. And culturally. There's so many things that, um, you, you know, like we all these new reality TV shows and, and I listen to British radio every day. I stream it from England and they'll be talking about people not it's mainly more political. But, um, you know, when they do talk about pop culture and I have absolutely no idea who anybody is past 1994 and the same is here anything before 1994 that people will talk about adverts and it's amazing how often these things come up how they'll start talking about oh do you remember that advert from your childhood I'm like nah you know or there'll be a jingle or there'll be some kind of you know um uh, uh like uh some advert that had this really kind of catchy line that everybody refers to. And um, so Josie, I think, is going to be a little bit like me, that she'll go back to England feeling like she has returned home, but people will still refer to her as, oh, that American, even though she was born in England and lived 20 odd years in England. Um, I've actually lived more now in the US than I have in, in my birth country, which is quite interesting. I think I reached that tipping point last year because uh, I left when I was quite young. I left when I was 21 and um, 21, 22 and went traveling um, around the world for several years. So I, I, you know, I've been 26 years here. So there was, I was that, that kind of like, wow, I'm actually, I've lived in America longer than I've lived in England. So what, what led you to choose to set your novel in England instead of in, for example, Austin, Texas? Yeah. Um, so I before before I wrote uh, Cozy Murder Mysteries, I wrote children's adventure books and I was at a, um, a tailgate party. And one of my friends here, Austin is, is, is a wonderful mecca for children's authors and authors in general. And I have a very good friend here named Karen McInerney who writes very several very well known Cozy Murder Mystery series. And she came up to me and said, literally out of the blue and said, Sam, why don't you write Cozy Murder Mysteries set in England? And I looked at her and I said, I don't know, Karen, why, why don't I write Cozy Murder Mysteries set? I mean, it just, you know, I love Midsummer Murder. I love Rosemary and Time, Grantchester, Shetland, Vera, all of these wonderful um, British 
TV series, plus all the books, Ruth Rendell, Colin Dexter, Agatha Christie. I grew up re reading and watching these things. And so I, I kind of put that on hold for a little bit. And then about six months later, I ended up moving to England for six months. And it was, it was quite bittersweet because my mother, bless her heart, um, we were very, very close. I'm an only child. And my mom and I were extremely, extremely good friends. And my mother was dying. And so I, I left America. Um, I went for Christmas initially, and I ended up staying through May. And my mother died in May. And the time that I was there, I don't know if you've ever been around anyone who um, is dying, but uh, they sleep more and more. So I had more and more time on my hands. It was almost like my personal lockdown before the pandemic when I couldn't really go out because I needed to be there if she wanted to die at home. And so I was in my mom's house and I had all this spare time. And so I thought, you know what? I remembered Karen's words and I thought there's never going to be a better time to write a cozy murder mystery set in England than now because I'm here and it will give me something to do. And I love writing. I'm, I've always been a storyteller. And so it, it makes me happy. It's my happy place. And I needed I needed that right then. So that's um, that's why it was set in England. And and for me, cozy murder mysteries, I know there's so many set in, you know, like Je Jessica Fletcher, so many set in the US. But for me, I don't know. I think like for me, a true cozy is in a cute English village, you know, with this wonderful um, cast of, of characters, crazy characters. And uh, so that's so that's how it ended up being set in England. And I and I know that part of the world. I was born just up the road from Shear. Um, in uh, not quite such a nice part. A friend of mine, a friend of mine who's known me since I was born said, you know, everyone's saying, oh, sorry, it's so idyllic. She goes, you, they've obviously not been to the part we grew up in. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I left at such a young age. I left and went to Shrewsbury very young. So I don't remember it, but apparently it's not the, it's not the, it's not the part that English American tourists are going to visit when they, when they go to <laughs> <laughs> let's just put it that way um, many fine qualities but it's not picturesque um so it just it kind of felt natural and um to to write that and then when I did get a, a few hours off I would I would run over to Shear and just kind of soak up the atmosphere and smell the fish and chips and 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 so it it felt it, it felt great to be able to write about it while I was actually in England and and often this the setting, especially in, in cozy mysteries, does function as a, a character itself. So was the was the English village your first character, or did you come up with the people first and then then the uh, place? Yes, it's kind of like Sex in the City being the fifth the fifth character, isn't it? I've heard that 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 talked about um, in the in the TV show. Um, I definitely came up with the characters first. But I, as I mentioned, I, I've, I'd written a series for children before, the Cousins in Action, the Five Cousins Adventures series. And one of those books is set in England. They're all set in different countries, Peru, India, Egypt, and um, so on Peru, India, Egypt, US, US and, and England. And my third book is set in England and I, I set it in the fictional village of Bumble Bottom, again, based on Shear, because obviously <laughs> I really like Shear. And uh, no one's actually put that together yet because it's such a different audience. I don't think there's been any crossover, but it's basically the same village. And um, yeah, I, I, just, I just think that um, the village, the village 
is, is, is an important part and it's a fun part and it's wonderful to have that beautiful idyllic background all the thatched cottages and the trailing um, honeysuckle I always associate the smell of honeysuckle with my my childhood because where I grew up in Shropshire there was a trellis of honeysuckle outside my bedroom window which I could smell so whenever I smell that it takes me back to my childhood so there's a trellis of honeysuckle and but no I think definitely the characters first but it, it just I don't think I even gave it much thought, Alexia. It just, I was like, this is where it's going to be set because it's so beautiful. And, I, and I'm a photographer and I really enjoy capturing beauty. And so I, I tried to make this village everything I would want it to be if I lived there. And did your work of work as a photographer help with the, the writing? And does it help you translate things that people see into words so that people reading the book can also see it? Let's go with yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think as a photographer, I, I'm, I'm predominantly, I, I take a lot of senior shots of people and um, headshots, a lot of author headshots, as you can imagine. I'm, I'm down here in Austin, I predominantly take a lot of my friends and people recommend me because they know me in the author community. But my big love is taking pictures of flowers. And every summer since my children were young, we have traveled back to England and spent every summer there. And England, as you probably know, is, is, is renowned for its gardens, it, it, its roses. It, it, it's just stunning. I'm, there are places here in, in the US that can rival it, but probably not on quite such a, an amazing scale. Like in the county of Kent, you can go to Hever Castle or Chartwell or Penshurst or Groomsbridge, and they're all within maybe like 15 miles of each other, and they've all got spectacular gardens. And so when my children were young and, and my mother's still quite in good health, I would drag them out to these places with my macro lens on my DSLR and capture all these wonderful close-up pictures of flowers, roses, um, delphiniums, hollyhocks, all those type of things. And so I, I can, it's funny, I, I know beauty when I see it, but I, I could never be an artist and draw it. I, I couldn't create it, but with words, I feel like I can. And I do have so many pictures of Shear that I have gone back to, to look at the, they've got these Bill and Ben, this is again, going back to the vernacular of, of my children's world. There was this series when I grew up called Bill and Ben, the flower pot men. And one of the gardens in Shear has these Bill and Ben, they're made out of flower pots upside down. Um, those orange, what are they called? Um, that uh, ter uh, terracotta? terracotta? Yeah, they're made out of orange terracotta uh, flower pots. And they're obviously from this series back from the early 70s, late 60s. And so I was able to access all these pictures from Shear from over the years. And that has been that has been helpful in remembering little details on houses, like some of the very intricate flower pots, um, uh, sorry, um, chimney pots on top of the houses. They're not just plain. Some of them are just wonderful circular um, spiral contraptions. I mean, they're wonderful. So it, that does help with my photography that I you know my, my children were like oh she's going to stop the car again look there's a there's, there's a thatched cottage wait the brakes are going to go on but um yeah it, it has come back to help me in the long run that's for sure and uh, you, you talked about your your children's books did writing children's books uh did you find that uh helpful when uh changing to writing adult fiction or did it have nothing to do with it or did you find one much easier than the other 
Yes. Um, no, it was a very easy leap, actually, from children's adventure books, the mystery adventure. They, uh, and it was funny because I'm known for my children's books. And so when I started telling um, my wider circle of friends that I was writing cozy murder mysteries, they, they would kind of look at me a little confused and say, are those for children? And I'd be like, no, no, those, those are adult books. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing, you know, like I hate using the word adult because it has different connotations, but no, I'm like, no, these are, these are definitely adults. There's a murder in it. We don't normally do that with, with middle grade children, you know, eight to 12. So, but no, it was an easy leap. And my children's books, I'm, I'm known as the queen of cliffhangers. And I remember when I first gave these books to one of my beta readers, she had a, a young daughter who was about seven. And she was a prolific reader in, in my older daughter's grade. And I said, would you mind reading this to Sophie at night and seeing what she thinks? Or give it to Sophie. And, and, and so about 10 days later, I, I get this phone call from, from Sarah, her mother saying, Sam, that was the worst bedtime book we've ever read. And I, I was devastated because I'd written these books for my children. And um, I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, every night we would read this out loud because she had a younger daughter as well. Mm -hmm. And every night my children would be like, you can't stop there. No, <laughs> what you know, so I was like, oh, 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 so it was worst bedtime book in a good way. That it, so, so I think I took that, that ability and that know-how of the, the mystery um, and the adventure, and I just transferred it into the adult world. So it was actually a very easy, a very easy transition. Now, you're, you're also a very funny storyteller. I mean, I've, you probably hear me laughing the whole time you're trying to talk. So I apologize for that, but oh, your stories are terrible. Oh, thank you. Um, so, and, and you use humor in the Puccini connection. So were, were you trying to be funny or did the humor sort of organically evolve as you wrote the book? No, I'm just funny. <laughs> I, you know, and it was, it was interesting because with my mom being so sick, I thought I can't write these lighthearted children's adventure books. But then I wrote the exact same thing for adults. I don't, I don't think I have the ability to to write without being funny. It's just my default, and um, which is why I don't do romances because it would just <laughs> very quickly go downhill into a bit of a debacle. So um, yeah, any love scenes would be, you know, that people would be tripping over each other and I'm sure that that's not what romance readers want to read. So, um, but no, it's, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think I've always been funny. It's kind of a weird thing to say about yourself, isn't it? But um, yeah, and it just, it just translates. Um, people who know me say that they, my voice is so, is so prevalent in these books, the narrator, the way she talks in the book. It, it's, it's just so me. It's just, they can hear my voice saying it. And I know you, you said the, the humor helped you deal with your, your, mother's, your mother's terminal illness, but how do you manage the challenge of uh, balancing humor with something like murder, which in and of itself actually isn't particularly funny? Well, I think it's the genre, isn't it? And that's the wonderful thing about cozy murder mysteries is that we we have this this villain or we have this victim, I should say, and they die and everyone's like, oh, that's sad, they're dead. All right, let's find out who did it. And um, 
And I just think that's a given. That's kind of, we we suspend disbelief in this genre, don't we? That I mean, I remember reading your first book, um, which I love. And I was like, who's going to be left at the end of this? And, <laughs> Um, you know, you, you you kill a lot of people in that first book. <laughs> I was like, I, I I don't know who did it because everyone who did it is now dead. So, um, but that's what I like about that genre is, yes, there is that sadness of a death, but quite often it's somebody we don't like in a book. And especially in my second book, The Unread Prophecy, the person who dies at the beginning, I mean, she's horrible and, and, and no one's going to be grieving over her. And so you can get off on and have fun in the book and um it's not like you have to deal with like in a in a in a more a crime novel where a child dies and the mother is grieving and you have to deal with all those feelings we don't have that in cozy murder mysteries it's all just like all right well that's we've got that part of the book done now let's have some fun and I think that's why that genre resonates with me that I that I that I was drawn to it because that's the type of thing I want to write now, another challenge that Cozy's faced by being set in small towns, you're kind of in a situation where, on the one hand, everybody seems to know everybody else's business, but then you also have to keep certain secrets. So how did you uh, handle that tension between everyone knowing what everyone did as soon as they do it versus needing to keep things hidden? Well, I think one of the wonderful things about human nature is that people lie. And so, because um, my second book, my, my editor just got back and she's like, no, no, this lady said said this. In, and I said, she's lying. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is that, isn't there? And And the rumor mill is so easily you know, that children's game where you whisper and by the end, the, the message is, is completely different. You can play on that, can't you? That um, you have the, you have the, mitches, the, the witches of Milkwood in, in the Pacini connection, these three, uh, I won't call them octogenarians because I think they're more in their 70s, but they're, they're, they're getting up there. And, um, and apologies to my cousins who are all in their 70s and that wonderful, wonderful age, wonderful age. Um, but uh, yes, I think, it, it, it there's you can introduce the spitefulness the people misconstrue things on purpose and so so there's ways around of, of, of getting that in a small village I I wonder if I hope Milkwood will, will turn into the equivalent of Midsummer you know which is actually a county so we do have a little bit more room to play with but already in the second book um, I've gone to a, a neighboring village and um, the murder takes place in a neighboring village and uh, but most of the, you go back to Milkwood for most of the action afterwards. But I think there's ways around it. Yes, and of, and of course, with with uh, Midsummer and uh, with the Jessica Fletcher series, I mean, it's actually kind of a running joke as to their per capita murder rates. Um, so that's actually part of the fun of it is someplace so small with so many uh, bodies falling. Yes, um, I, I'm a big lover of Elizabeth Peters. And I, I think it was, and, and all her books take place in Egypt um, at the turn of the 20th century. And they're wonderful, wonderful comedic books, such a great feisty heroine with her parasol and everything. And I think, I, I think it was her, forgive me if I'm incorrect, but there was something in her novel that that she knew didn't make sense. And, and, and somebody pointed out, look, like all the other things you've had to suspend disbelief that, you know, every time you go on a dig and that there was somebody died here and somebody died that, or maybe it was a time travel 
I, I forget, there was something. Anyway, it was one of all. And somebody said, you know what? Your readers are already suspending disbelief on so many levels. This is bother <laughs> them, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think that goes along with genre. And uh, now, how did, how did you decide on a, uh, a musical theme for your series? Is it because of your love of classical music that your, your protagonist is a, is a classical musician? Yes, I think so. I, I grew up with classical music. My father was a self-taught pianist and he also played the organ. My mother could barely sing Happy Birthday in tune, but we won't hold that against her. Thankfully, I, I got my father's genes on, in the musical department. And by the age of five, I was playing the piano, having lessons. Uh, by 16, I played the clarinet and the violin and I sang like opera. So I've always been surrounded by classical music. It's what we played in the house and I love it. I just grew up with it. Um, it was a little bit, when I was younger, a bit of, I, I always liked to be different. I always never liked to be the same. And I, I took pride in the fact that I loved my Dvorak and my Sibelius and things like that. And now, unfortunately, I'm at an age where I'm expected to like classical music. You know? <laughs> like I realize it's not quite such a novel idea as it was when I was 16, you know. I'm at an age where th that's what you do. You, you, you descend into, into Elgar and Vaughan Williams. But um, uh, yeah, it just, it's just what I know and I love it. And, I, and I, I'm a little bit on a mission and I don't know if you felt this with your series as well, but I love it so much and I'm so sad when I meet people who don't love it. And so I, one of my favorite reviews for the Puccini Connection was a lady who said, I know nothing about classical music, but I feel like at the end of the Puccini Connection, I want to learn more. I want to know more about Elgar. And, and, and you know, I, we were talking about having a glossary at the front of English American terminology. I don't do that, but at the back, I do have a glossary of all the, uh, of all the music that's mentioned. So you can go to my favorite recording, my favorite Simon Rattle, who was the, um, when I was growing up in Shrewsbury, he was the leader of the CBSO, which was the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And he was my first crush. He had all these wonderful black he was the dudamel of his day you know and um he had all these black curls and we would buy seven pound tickets to sit behind the double bases so we'd be facing him towards the <laughs> and me and all my you know sixth form music a-level students we would just be like oh Simon <laughs> so I I do like the fact that maybe the Puccini connection is bringing people to classical music and introducing them to maybe things, you know, when you, you think of classical music, you think of Beethoven or Mozart, and maybe that isn't everybody's cup of tea, but there's so much more to it than that. And if I can introduce people to it, then I feel like my, my job is done. And, and just because I promised I'd ask you, <laughs> if Josie was a piece of classical music, what piece of classical music would she be? Thank you for asking. Um, no, I, I, I am denied over this. And I was asked this in another interview and I was like, oh my goodness, I have no idea who I am, you know, pertaining to be this, um, this big person who knows all this stuff about classical music. But I came up with a Cacciaturian, um, who's one of my favorite composers. Spartacus is, is an amazing ballet and the, oh, the score is just sublime. Um, I came up with his Sabre Dance, which for anybody who thinks classical music is boring, it's it's probably one of the most it's like this whirling dervish of piece of music from start to finish and um and I just felt that that Josie 
you know, she just bounces from one situation to the other, that this would be a great piece of music to, to have as her back, as her backdrop. If it, if, if it was a movie and we had to like have classical music in the background as she goes between scenes, that, that's the music that I could imagine playing. <laughs> Conducted by John Williams, because you know. <laughs> okay. Because of course, why not? Of course. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> hey, now, um, you you have mentioned the second book in the series, Unread Prophecy. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about that one? Yes. So um, I came up with the idea for this book. Um, I'd been back in the States. So I, I, I wrote The Puccini Connection and then put it away in a box for a while. I was obviously traveling back and forth with, with my mother, um, dealing with her estate after her death. So I didn't really have time to do anything with that. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll get started on the second. And I had been invited to go to a conference up near Fort Worth and the conference was going to be in a field, which, um, and it wasn't going to be a run of the mill conference, you know, in, in some hotel with a chicken dinner. It was, it was going to be, you're going to learn about um, how to shoe a horse or how to dye fabric, uh, Tudor dancing, forensic scientists. There was all these people that were going to be there as a writer to show you physically how to do things that you might want to incorporate into your into your book and I was like this is wonderful so my friend Catherine and I we booked a hotel and we motored up there uh, pitched at, you know five o'clock in the morning to get there you know nice and early and it would have been fabulous other than the fact that it had been pouring with rain um, <sighs> the whole entire week before and oh my goodness it we 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 couldn't even park the car without worrying about it sinking. And you had to get up this dirt road to get to it. And there was a tractor trailer that had come off um, another American terminology that I was like, tractor trailer, there's a tractor? Like you'd hear <laughs> tractor trailers jackknifing. And I'd be like, what's a tractor doing on I-95? You know, so I digress. Anyway, it was, it was like in the ditch and people trying to pull it out. Anyway, half the people couldn't get there. Now, let me just say, I think this conference in dry, in a dry scenario would be wonderful. And one day I may go back, but I was traumatized by this, by this event. And to even get to the field, we ended up having to traipse through a forest. And by the time I got outside the other side of the forest, I had fire ants on the inside of my jeans oh. I was wet to the knees up and it was a disaster and nobody could show up there was nothing to eat they had a margarita machine which I thought was hysterical that's the one <laughs> point that was the sustenance and um and at one point we were sitting there listening to this forensic scientist in the one place that we could actually keep dry and everybody started coming in really fast. And then everyone's phones went off. And my friend who grew up in Texas said, don't worry, it's just a tornado watch. And you know, I'm English, so we don't do with, we don't do well with anything more than just a light squall. You know, it's like, you know, we don't do earthquakes and all these kind of American tornadoes, hurricanes. No, I don't do any of that stuff. And so, and then her face changed and she said, oh, now, now it's a warning. And at that point, I just grabbed her and we literally hijacked a truck to get out of there, down the road, back to our car. And the funny thing was, I said to her at the end, I said, um, would you think it crazy if we just went to a bookstore for the rest of the afternoon? And that's <laughs> what we, we went to this secondhand bookstore and we sat there. Then we went for dinner and then we went back to the bookstore and literally were there till like 1130 at night. And when we got home the next day. Um, I had all these wonderful plans when my children had graduated of going traveling and doing all these things. And I thought, my goodness, I couldn't even spend two days in a wet field without being totally traumatized. And I was telling my best friend about this. And she said, 
all you needed was a murder and then you'd have the, the premise for your second book. And so that's where the premise for the unread prophecy comes from. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, minus the tornadoes, minus the firelands, <laughs> because unfortunately those two things don't transfer well to a field in Surrey. But, um, but other than that, it was just this wonderful idea of having all these, you know, Albanian swords people. And I, I remember sitting when I was watching the Tudor dancers, um, they had actually made it in their welly boots and Tudor costumes. And um, the, there was a lady next to me and she was she was billed as the poison lady. And I was like, I love that there's oh, a yes. poison lady. So <laughs> what, what better to surround yourself with all these people who could kill your victim because they have the meaning <laughs> and the knowledge. And then of course you have all these people who are murder mystery writers who now think they know who did it because they're murder mystery writers, right? <laughs> so it just seemed like a great, it seemed like too good a premise to, to, uh, to, to avoid. So that's, <laughs> that's where the idea came for the second book. And um, you mentioned you were working on book three. Can we get a little hint about that one? Yes. So, um, so the first three books are all set in the summer, and then I'm and book four is, is is going to be in the winter. And so I was like, I couldn't leave summer without having a good English village fair with the donkeys and the egg and spoon races and the sack races and all those kind of things. That the the quintessential English. Like, like you've probably seen on Midsummer Murder, uh, pet dog competitions, fancy dress, that kind of thing. And um, so that it's going to be set at a village fete, which is, and the, the very funny thing about this is apparently Josie is informed at the very last minute that there is going to be a tomato king or queen who will be crowned. And she's like, what do you mean uh, a, a tomato? I don't like the sound of this. And, and she has very good reason not to like the sound of this because the person who wins this, this, this illustrious title is then led to the stocks and has tomatoes thrown at them. And Joni <laughs> is extremely worried that you're, you're apparently it's voted on. Um, uh, you don't know who votes for you. And she's convinced it's going to be her. So. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, it's for your votes against you. It's another one of those dubious honors, like being walled up in a building. <laughs> yes. Her sidekick, Belle, says something like, um, oh, it's one of the great, uh, um, the wonderful things about living in Milkwood. You have to live in Milkwood to be to be put forward. And, and Joseph's like, that does not sound like a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound like a good thing. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's funny. <laughs> I won't tell you if she is or not. You'll have to wait. But it, it, I wrote to my daughter. My daughter is 17 and she laughed um, out loud. And I thought, all right, if I can make my 17-year-old laugh out loud, then this has got to be good. Yes. <laughs> now, uh, the Puccini Connection uh, has been out since July. Is that correct? Correct. And Unread Prophecy comes out when? Oh, end of October 2020. So I'm, I'm <laughs> slightly... I'm slightly behind schedule what can I say uh, yeah it's um it's with beta readers right now and okay. yes I, I'm trying to get it out by the end of this year now I did have high hopes but it was kind of one of those reach for the reach for the moon and you might hit the stars kind of thing so I'm, I'm alas I am a little behind but it will get there eventually and I will let you know when it's out Okay, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. It'll be out just in time for Christmas and everyone can buy it for their family and friends for, for a holiday present. That would be wonderful, yes. And how about book three? Any, any idea when that one might be out? Well, 
I think, you know, in our genre, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, I, I just digress. You know, I, I say I'm a storyteller. I can never t- answer a question without telling a story. But I remember when I, when I first read Agatha Christie and then realized she had like, you know, what, 76 books or something. And yeah. I was excited. And I, I, I think the genre that we're both in begs for a series. And um, I think I've probably got a lot of readers out there, potential readers who won't even pick up my book until there's three. And so I am trying very hard to get these out, one, two, three, um, within the next, you know, kind of, so it was July. I, I would I would really like to say that this one would be out by spring. The third one would be out by spring so that you don't have too long to wait between between and that's the wonderful thing about being an indie publisher I, I set my own schedule but alas I've been so bogged down with the uh, photo shoots which is great because my mortgage company likes that I'm actually being paid but um it doesn't it doesn't work well. funny that way <laughs> yeah yeah if my if my mortgage company would just like say hey don't worry about it Sam we'll just just wait on that uh they'd be out a lot sooner let's just put it that way <laughs> Well, this, this gives this gives readers something to look forward to. Yeah, that rascally day job that just keeps getting in the way of everything. I hate that. Right? <laughs> and so, so where can readers buy a copy of the Puccini Connection then when they're out? Uh, Unread Prophecy and, and Book Three. Yes, I'd I'd like to say they're available in bookstores, but alas, not right now. But uh, on Amazon is is the easiest place to get them. Okay, and I think they're on Kindle Unlimited as well, aren't they? They are. That's correct. Okay. And and where can readers uh, connect with you if they want to find out more about Sam Bond? Well, hopefully, um, my, my oldest daughter just came home from college and she doesn't know this yet, but one of the things she's going to be doing <laughs> over the holidays is setting up a uh, a uh, website for me. So that, <laughs> don't hold your breath. She's in advertising. So I figured this could be a great advertising project, product, uh, project for her. Um, <laughs> spin it that way and see how much leverage I get. I don't, I don't think it's going to work, but um, uh, my other daughter, uh, she's like, she's really, fun. I'm, I'm technically inept. And my other daughter has been known. I've paid her to sit by my side and not let me get up until I've figured something out. Um, that was technical and she's always ended up doing it for me so so there's money and there's money to be made in this but other than that <laughs> I have a Facebook page Sam Bond author I also have a Five Cousins Adventure page uh, which I do have a website for that um, and uh, yeah those are probably the best ways of getting hold of me until but look out for my Sam Bond author page because I have high hopes that my my oldest daughter is going to come through for me so I'm sure she will. And then you can get her to do your, Insta- <laughs> then you can get her to do your Instagram page. Oh yes. You know, she's been trying to teach me how to do that. And it's, it's considering I'm a photographer, you think I'd have, a- <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's like my friend who was trying to set up something for me. She said, doctor heal thyself. She said, you are a photographer and you have the worst pictures of yourself. And I'm like, I can't take pictures of myself. <laughs> Kind of a bit like that but um, I have high hopes that come come 2021 I'll have a wonderful author page that everyone will be able to go to and take a look at okay well, we'll look out for that and we'll look out for uh further books in the Milkwood Murders series and thank you very much for joining me in the cozy corner today Sam you've you've made me laugh throughout this whole interview so uh, thank you for cheering up my Saturday oh you're very sweet thank you Alexia And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I've been chatting with Sam Bond, author of The Milkwood Murders. Book one, The Pacini Connection is available now and book two, The Unread Prophecy is on the way. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time.
Goodbye. Thanks, listeners, for joining me for another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listened. Follow the podcast on social media. I'm on Facebook as The Cozy Corner Podcast and Twitter and Instagram as podcast underscore cozy. Now you can support me on Patreon. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month and get a shout out on an episode of The Cozy Corner. Support at higher levels gains access to patron-only posts, thank you gifts, and giveaways. Sign up at www.patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.